When you're doing anything, I think you have to sort of convince yourself in the moment that it's the best thing that ever existed. Otherwise, you won't be able to progress. The worst thing I think that can happen in a creative project is you making some progress and then giving up on a project. I'm a procrastinator, and when you give me a year deadline, that is the equivalent of saying you have infinity amount of time to do this. <laughs> How do you take a topic like that that most viewers don't really think much about, know much about, or care much about, and make it engaging to them? I really don't think it's any different than talking about modern politics or a recent movie. How do you find the balance between including enough so that people get it and not so much that it's too much? Like so many of my answers, it is an iterative process that you learn over time, which is the promise of YouTube, is that it's not precious. Hey, welcome to The Create Unknown, the home of Make Something Mean Something. We are live on Discord, just like we are every week. If you want to hang out on Discord and talk to us and talk to a whole community of like-minded, creative individuals, join our Discord. I'm Kevin Lieber, and with me, as always, is Matthew Tabor. Yeah, the Discord is a great place. Also, thank you to all of the new patrons uh, that that came to us through Psychic Pebbles. Uh, that's that has just been an amazing rush and we use every bit of it goes straight back into the show. Um, yeah, it, it's just really an incredible feeling to wake up and see these notifications in your inbox that people are like, yeah, I think, uh, I think what you do is worth a couple bucks. Um, it's awesome. And we will, uh, do our best to, to make that worthwhile, but pop in the discord, say, Hey, we're on Twitter, anywhere else. We, we want to get to know who you get to know you and find out, you know, the projects that you work on. Uh, real quick, too, I want to say thanks to Main Gear. I, I mentioned them uh, in the last episode and how I'm putting a studio together around an amazing Main Gear vibe. Um, we got a link in the description. If you use the code CREATE, you'll get an additional one year tacked on the warranty of a Main Gear desktop. Um, my wallpaper is here. That's been holding up the room. It took me an entire month to get wallpaper shipped. So now that the wallpaper's here, that can go on this week, I hope. Then we're looking at lighting, and then the, then the streaming can start. But one of the most requested guests that we've had over the last three years is actually here today. Um, when people talk to you about starting informational or educational channels, a couple of the same names come up. The Vsauce is the crash courses, but when somebody is, is leaning toward the video essay format, one name always comes up. Literally every single conversation I've had about a video essay channel in my life, this name comes up, and that's Nerdwriter. Um, 11 years ago, Evan uploaded his first vlog, and since then, his nearly quarter billion views have covered a shocking range of subjects. One day he's analyzing Harry Potter, the next day Nirvana, then he's breaking down how Donald Trump answers questions or exactly why Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize. Anything with a deeper meaning is fair game. So it's no surprise that his book that comes out on August 30th is a collection of essays titled Escape into Meaning. 
which really is a fine phrase to summarize the entirety of the Nerdwriter channel. So, Evan, you started your YouTube to promote a book. Now you've got the book. <laughs> you've come full circle. Is it, is it time to just delete the channel? Uh, no. <laughs> I still... <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I still love doing the Nerdwriter. Um, you know, the reason I started the show or the reason that I continue to do it is because I love figuring out what kinds of things the YouTube online video format is good at doing. And I've had so much fun in the last 11 years, you know, refining it and iterating and seeing because this is a this is a new medium or it was pretty new when I started seeing what are the unique strengths and weaknesses of this form. The book is the essays that I've been wanting to write for all that time, but didn't have the, the visual necessity. It didn't need to be on the nerd writer. It didn't need to be on YouTube, but there are things that just stuck in my head that the right form for those was prose. And yeah, I started the channel to, to, to promote a book, which is not a good book, <laughs> a novel that I wrote <laughs> years and years ago. Um, but what was the premise of the novel, by the way? Uh, the premise uh, was a, it was a book about a planet wide city called an ecumenopolis. I'm, I'm a science fiction fan and I just have this thing with cities. So I, I wrote a, a, a novel about a planet wide city that through the through the uh, perspectives of, I think, eight or nine people that were all separate but interconnected. And the big reveal at the end was that it was actually Mars. <laughs> so that, oh. that was that was the big twist at the end that they had forgotten about Earth. That sounds like a good plot, though. That, yeah, like, that's a, a decent plot. What, what? Why was this book so bad? What'd you do? Uh, it was bad because I was a bad writer. I mean, that's really the oh. uh, that, that, <laughs> that's a good reason. That is the the simplest and best <laughs> reason. Um, yeah, I was just starting. You know, I, I hadn't really written anything. Um, but when you are writing, when you're doing anything, I think you have to sort of convince yourself in the moment that it's the best thing that ever existed. Otherwise the, the demons of your mind will put that, you know, put the kibosh on that really quickly and you won't be able to progress. But with a perspective of 10 years, <laughs> I can see, <laughs> I can see where I really was at. Um, but 10 years of making the nerd writer, writing so many scripts, writing tens and hundreds of thousands of words. It gave me the practice to, to come back at prose um, with a little more skill. And I, I hope, I think, I hope that, that people um, will enjoy the book as much as they enjoy the show. I would think one thing that you got really good at was hooking an audience. I, mean, I think if there's one thing that YouTube forces you to learn, it's yeah. probably that, how to title things and how to hook an audience really quickly. I would see that that skill, you know, being being uh, sort of flexed over a decade, got pretty good that you could then, you know, use that in your book. I, I, before we get, because because I think Matt and I have a bunch of questions about your YouTube channel, but I want to stay on the book, yeah. the book subject first, because yeah. first of all, I think you're our first guest that has written and published a book. Matt, is that right? Has anybody else uh, done a book? Cinema Sins. Cinema Sins. Ah, okay. Okay. Yeah, I yeah. forgot about uh, that. But but that but that book wasn't uh directly related to to the content. You remember it was 
um, a, a series of kind of young adult novels, right? Um, uh, oh, were they really? novels well, or graphic? Were they graphic novels? Man, I'm not remembering that uh, well at all now at this point. I th- I, now I'm thinking they were graphic yeah. novels because we have comic book artist Rusty Cage, who's coming back next week, by the way. Sure. Um, does yeah. comics. But um, we've had a lot. Of, what I wanted to say is we've had a lot. Some, something kind of struck a chord that you were you were mentioning earlier with me. And that's we've had a lot of animators on the show. And one thing that they say over and over and over again is that you got to be really sure that this joke that you thought was funny at one point is still funny after like a hundred hours of making the thing come to life because it takes that long to stick with the joke and hope, you know, between all of the animating and the, the audio and the animatics and the storyboarding and blah, 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 blah. You spend like just an ungodly amount of time on one yes. freaking animated joke that you have just to trust yourself. This is what they say that they, you need to trust yourself that your former self thought that this was funny enough that your, you know, future self, however many months later, still thinks, okay, this will be funny when people see it for the first time. Uh, when, when you're writing a book, it, it's such a long process that there must be some of, some of that coming into play as well. Because I know a lot of people, who, who, especially who make like longer YouTube videos, that by the end of it, you're like, is this any good anymore? I don't even know. I've spent so much time. I can't be objective about it. How did that come into play when you're writing a book? And, and, and how long of a process was writing it for you? Well, I first of all, I always feel that after the end of anything, I always feel like, is this good? I, I'm complete. I'm way too close to it. I have no idea, you know, and so you have to let the audience tell you and you have to let people around you tell you because y- y- you go deep on something, you know, with 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 YouTube, it's like you're in these editing wormholes for, you know, 12 hours a day and, you know, you, you, you think you have some object, you know, objectivity, mm-hmm. uh, but you don't. Um, for the book, you know, that was a year and a half process uh, of writing. And, you know, the, the the benefit of going through the traditional pub- publishing route, which I did, was that you get an editor who sees it with fresh eyes and lets you know what they're thinking, another perspective, you know, they they tell you and then you can adjust from that. And you do it back and forth until you, you get it to a place where, you know, um, both parties feel like there's something here and editors are ed- editing is an art, you know, that, that, that is, they, they, editors are great at their jobs. My editor, Stephanie Hitchcock at Simon and Schuster was amazing. Um, but going back to what you said about sort of the mental, sort of the mental process of it, you know, the last essay actually in the book is called write a book. And it is about my experience writing that novel, uh, big city. And then the novel that came after it, which was what, the reason that I started the YouTube channel. And really what that essay is about is how writing a book taught me about the, the, the varieties of my own mood. Because when you sit down to, and the changeability of my mood, because when you sit down to write something, you are just going to be bombarded with a lot of self-doubt and self-loathing and really like really harsh stuff. Like there there is no one who knows your insecurities more than you, your brain, and they will just throw that shit at you when you're, when you're trying to write, you know, and (laughs) it, 
it's tough, you know? And so this whole thing of sitting down to write for a certain amount of words or hours a day, like it's more than just sitting down and facing the blank page. It's sitting down and facing this relentless antagonist who knows everything about you. And so when I started writing that first book, I would have no good days in a week, zero, you know, and you get to the end of the week and it's just like you, you look at it and it's, it's just pure shit. You know, you, you feel like crap. But then after five weeks, I had one good day and a day when I look back over the work and thought, you know, that's, that's not so bad. And in the book, I sort of laugh about it because it was bad. But at the time I thought, you know, (laughs) it wasn't. And for the next couple of weeks, you have a day, a good one, good day a week. And then, you know, eventually over, over time you have two good days a week. And it's to me that the time felt like an embarrassment of riches. I was like, whoa, (laughs) <laughs> the the major takeaway from that was that I was able to witness the cycling of my own mood and my own temperament. You know, so when I was having a bad day, it didn't feel like the end of the world. It just felt like what I say in the book, a losing spin on a slot machine that basically never pays out. But that's okay because you can spin again. And so even though those books were bad, they taught me something that I've taken with me through my entire creative life, which is that when shit is bad and you're and you're being very self-critical, you, you just have to batten down the hatches and hold on to that certainty that the mood will cycle back again to good. And that's so important because the worst thing I think that can happen in creative in a creative uh, project is you is you uh, making some progress and then giving up on a project because that 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 voice in your head that really wants to take you down will just stop the project from proceeding and then you will forget what you did you you won't come back to it it'll just go into that graveyard of projects that you started but never finished and I say in the book, there's a there is a graveyard of gr- of great projects that all have you know a tombstone that reads left off on day month year and <laughs> obsessed about something for three days and forgot it ever existed. You know, so that's what writing this book taught me, or, or that those books taught me, and what helped me with the YouTube channel and with this book. Mm-hmm. I love hearing about that process and the the little antagonist inside you because I have the opposite problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a really, a, a really funny thing happened to me about 15 years ago. Uh, if anybody used Google reader to, uh, use RSS feeds to, to track content on a website, I, I don't think these services exist anymore. I know they shut down reader, but like you would add a website's RSS feed. And then every time they would put a story on or a blog post, it would update in your reader. So it was kind of like you know, the way you use a podcast app and get new episodes, but it was really bare bones. So it didn't always display images or, or things that straight away told you, uh, where it was from. Um, I, I was reading about 200 articles a day in, in reader. And I was reading this one and it's like, I, this is fantastic. Um, I agree with literally everything I'm reading right now. 
this is amazing. And at the end, I clicked the link to go to the site so I could see who this was. And it was a thing that I'd written about six months before <laughs> uh, and had forgotten. <laughs> wow, this guy is a genius. Wow, I really would love to pick his brain. Oh, my Lord. That's exactly how I felt. I'm like, oh, this is so good. And it, when I finish something, and, and Kevin knows this, uh, like you described the, the collaborative process with an editor, we've talked a lot about how Kevin and I work on projects and, and do that back and forth to get to a really good place. But when I finish something, my first thought when I'm done is like, my God, how did how did humanity function without this? <laughs> An hour ago, they didn't have this in the world. And now it's here. Uh, that is that is its own problem. You know, uh, it's really helpful to for me to spend a couple days away from something. You know, it can't usually be longer because there's always a deadline, right? But ideally, I would I would do that thing where you stick it under your bed for three months and then read it again. And it's it's a whole lot worse once you've gotten the distance, you know, and you fix a lot of bad stuff. Yeah. Um, but but these problems can go two ways. You can think something is amazing and you need somebody to point out the flaws to go through. And, you know, if it's a novel, get the plot holes, uh, you know, fix this character, maybe just throw this character out. Um, if it's a YouTube video, uh, I, I've gone into tremendous detail over the last three years about different things that, I, that I've written, uh, thinking it was awesome. And then in 10 seconds, you know, Kevin's like, that doesn't work for a video. That's a bad fit for a visual format. And he's right every single time. So you can you can find yourself fighting yourself or over celebrating yourself. Either way, you need <laughs> I want to stick with the alliteration and, a, and say fighting, fighting yourself or filleting yourself. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, that, that, bas yeah. that, 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 that yeah. basically <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> But that covers the spectrum. But having somebody else who can who can give you the opposite of the problem that you have and, and really correct your course is, oh, it's it's everything. But I do think those two things go hand in hand. Like, yes, you you have this sort of self-critical self critical side, but you also do like I was saying earlier, like you you and like Kevin was saying, you do have to believe somewhere deep down that what you want to say has value. Whether it's like whether it's an animation joke or whether it's a video on YouTube or a book, like you you have to something down there has got to convince you that it does have a, even if it doesn't have value, you know, like which which you learn later, like you say, or when you you learn when someone else gets a look at it. Um, if you didn't have that like basic basic fundamental motivation at the bottom of everything, then you wouldn't be able to you just wouldn't be able to start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I don't know what you've been sipping, but you've got it all wrong. It's time to commit to the leaf. We've embraced the smoothness and surprising pick-me-up that tea provides. I literally drink it all day long, nearly a gallon a day, and it powers me through research, script writing, and forums on websites that I refuse to name here. But we don't drink normie NPC tea. We drink cultured and refined anime tea from the Dragon's Treasure. Kevin still likes the gunpowder green called Space Cowboy, and I've sampled nearly 40 Dragon's Treasure teas at this point. Lately, I've been slamming black teas like Kentucky Bourbon and Liquefied Berserk Despair. Scottish Breakfast is deep and peaty, and I smooth it over with Sebastian's Morning Earl Grey, which... 
has the best vanilla cream taste I think I've ever had in a cup. Give me a pot of that with a hot meatball sub from Sal's Pizza and Brooks Barbecue Chicken to wash down my last meal on death row. I highly recommend the sampler packs. You'll want to try everything just like I did. I literally have not had one tea that I wouldn't be happy to reorder. The Dragon's Wings membership fuels new tea experimentation and the Tea of the Month Club provides a regularly scheduled surprise. And when you order from the Dragon's Treasure using code CREATE, you'll get 10% off your order. That's 10% off using the code CREATE at thedragonstreasure.com. The link's in the description. I, I would love to get more in the weeds and more into how the sausage is made on this because I'm really intrigued by what you said as far as having no good days for a while, then you have one a week, then you have two a week. Uh, so I suppose that this is two questions. Um, one, why do you think that happens or why did that happen to you? And two, was the book the only thing you were doing all day, five days a week, seven days a week? Like what was your life like surrounding working on the book? Yeah, it, it was it was a somewhat strange time for me because I had um, I had come out of film school and at, in Boston and quickly gave up filmmaking um, because for the simple reason that I just did not think I was a prodigy and that I would need a lot of. Oh, the, I, I yeah, I'm sorry. I got to interrupt. Yeah, you. yeah. I didn't know that you went. I didn't know that you went to com. I am a terrier as well. I did. I spent way too many hours in the basement of that com building. Oh my yeah, god! I think I B five baby. I was. Uh, I oh, it's a dungeon down there, but it's charming. Um, yeah, I was about six years uh, before you, but but yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's listen, awesome. listen. I uh, I had great years there, and I learned a lot about film mm -hmm. and some great professors and obviously so many great friends um come yeah we're, we're connected for life now we're connected for life is that but um <laughs> i left school re i was so into film in school but when i left i i just i sort of just knew that i wasn't like i said i wasn't a prodigy i wasn't someone who was going to be like amazing out the gate and so what i needed really needed was practice and you know, anybody who works in film knows that practice in filmmaking costs a lot of money and a lot of time. And I just thought at the time, I don't need that. I don't have that time and I don't have that money, you know? And so I needed something where I could practice every day. And so I moved to Portland, Oregon to a friend's grandparents' house that they, they kindly let us rent for really cheap. And I just was writing. You know, I was looking for that next thing and I just decided I'm going to write a novel. I'm going to sit down and do it. Um, so that was that was the circumstances. So, yes, I was writing every day. But the the reason why that little person is in my head, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if, if other people can relate to it or not. It was that was the case for me. Um, I think it's probably a lot to do with that famous Ira Glass quote, which is that there's a gulf between your skill and your taste. You know, you, your taste, he said, is killer. And you know what you want to be doing, but your skill is not anywhere close to that. And because you have good taste, you can see, you can see that your stuff is not good. You know, it, and the only way to close the gap 
between your skill and your taste, Ira Glass said, was to make a volume of work, you know? And, and so I, I could see very clearly in those early days that this was not the great Gatsby, you know, it was not even <laughs> like 50 shades of gray, you know, it was not twilight. It was not there. <laughs> and that's frustrating because you just want to fast forward to the time when you are practiced, but you can't do that. And then I started sitting down to write and this whole emotional gauntlet just slapped me in the face. And I'm like, what is this? You know, and I say in the book, like even today, even writing this book, the good day, bad day ratio, it never tipped. At the most, it was equal bad to equal good, you know, but wow. compared to what it was at the beginning, it's great. And I'll take it, you know, three and a half good days a week is enough to complete a long-term project. Mm -hmm. And and so with this book, what was your schedule like? Was it was it similar to the way, like did, because I, I noticed gaps on your channel where you weren't uploading. So yeah. did, did you just work on the book and not make videos uh, for the most part? Or like, how did you balance that? Well, it was weird because I got the, like I got the deal to write the book at the beginning of COVID. And everybody was saying, you know, everybody was saying, and I was thinking to myself like, oh, this, you know, we were locked down, we were stuck in the home. And I was like, oh, this is the perfect time to write. Like, you know, just, just free time, you know, to do that. But I felt, you know, in the beginning, I found it really hard to, um, to focus. I think it was just the craziness of those first few months of COVID. I think maybe other people can, you know, relate to that. But the second piece of it was that I'm a procrastinator. And when you give me a year deadline, that is the equivalent of saying you have infinity amount of time to do this. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not good. Uh, especially, especially being a YouTuber, you know that internet years are like seven human years. Yeah. So that seems like it, it, it'll never come. So I was, I was already going, I, was, I had already decreased the number of videos on the channel. I only do about eight or 10 a year now and have been doing that for the last few years. But so the first few months, they just flew by. You know, it, I, I, this writing this book, like I didn't do it perfectly with this book, but it, it did teach me a little bit about time management. I'm so bad at time management, but it taught me a little bit like clearly I'm a like a stick person and not a carrot person. Like I need the deadline to, to motivate me. And with a deadline that's so far in advance, it just wasn't it couldn't get me there. Um, and so after a few months when I could sort of see the deadline on the horizon, that's when it really started kicking into gear. Um, and th yeah, then I would work, I would sit down and just work every day. You know, I'm a morning person. And so I can work until f about four. That's when my brain just, you know, can't do focused creative work anymore. And so I wake up early and try to get as much done as I can. Um, a lot of distractions, you know, as you guys, I'm sure know, you, you, you lose a lot of time, but there was enough time to cobble cobble enough there. And then I didn't finish by the deadline. And I kindly had to ask for another uh, couple months, which they kindly gave to me. And I was able to finish then. Um, but that was my schedule. You know, once I could see the deadline on the horizon and started, you know, that fear of deadline coming up, then I started getting motivated. And then mm -hmm. I started writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of YouTubers could probably relate to that. Or a lot of creative <laughs> people in general can probably yeah. relate to that. You know, I, I have told this story before, but it's it's so funny the difference between 
creative people where uh, some people like to be extremely organized. Like, like I like my workspace to be clean, like barren, like me nothing too. Me too. around me, like nothing on my desk except the keyboard and the mouse and, and, and whatever no. my beverage is, me nothing too. else no. around. I'm, I'm the same way. I know other creative people, I'm not going to, uh, nobody on this call, but nobody I'm also going to throw under the bus who have the total opposite. Actually, my dad is like this a lot. Where, oh yeah. Your dad's workshop is, is, <laughs> oh, there's a lot of, there's a it, lot it's of, not, it's not it's, messy. It's, there's just a lot of things going on. There's a lot going on. It's just stuff ev yeah. everywhere and it's a bit chaotic and there seems to be this like binary one or zero where people creative people are either like super on the hyper clean side or super on like they need to be sort of surrounded by this womb of chaos almost in order yeah. to be comfortable to create which i find really interesting but i think the same thing almost almost with deadlines too because i've told this story recently about the difference between jake roper and i jake from vsauce 3 yeah and myself <laughs> Uh, and the, the easiest way to illustrate this is that, uh, we both did, um, a TEDx talk in Vienna years ago, uh, separately, not together. Um, Jake did his first and the way he did it was he was literally writing his talk on the plane while like in the air, in the airplane flying to the event, he was working on his talk. Conversely, I wrote mine like like word for word, hyper focused on every single word about five months before I had to give the talk and then rehearsed it like almost daily for about three months before I got on that stage. Completely different approach. <laughs> Couldn't be more different. And they both came out really well. And they're but both they, fine. They, they, they were both excellent. But that, that's yeah. the thing is that the procrastinate, you know, there is something that there is a hyper focus about the procrastinators, like the people who who do things at the last minute. It's not necessarily that one is, is better than the other. It's just that for some reason, this is the way these people's brains work, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm a combo of you and Jake because I'm hyper clean, but also a procrastinator. You know, like <laughs> if, if my workspace is is messy or my apartment is messy, I feel like my life is like falling apart, you know, and so I need I'm like OCD in that way. But the inside of my brain is not that organized. You know, I, I, it, it is far more chaotic inside there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I watched your book announcement video, your apartment. It looks like a, um, something out of a magazine. It's inc <laughs> Seriously. It's like. Incredible. It looks like an Instagram post of what a nice apartment would look like. That's highly produced. <laughs> um, well, let's get into some of the um, YouTube stuff, some of the video stuff. I know, uh, Matt, you were you had a question about sort of the progression. What, what were you thinking about video essays in general? I did. Yeah, um, we have we've talked to so many different people about the evolution of of their little subgenre on YouTube or um, even on a site like Newgrounds with with animation that changing over time uh, on the surface, it feels like the video essay would not evolve very much or because, it, you know, it's an essay format. It's kind of always going to be the same, right? Well, this is the question is uh, what's different now? about that format compared to when you started on YouTube. 
It's a good question. I mean, uh, I hate to say I'm not as watched in all this stuff as as I probably should be, but when I started, you know, it was a it was a I wasn't doing video essays whatever that is, whatever the definition of that is when I started. You know, I started it's essentially like a clone of the Vlogbrothers. That was that was what got me into it. A Zay Frank, you know, style quick cuts type of thing. And just the the iterative process of every week trying to figure out how to make it more immersive, coupled with seeing some videos from people who like the the one that really that really kind of changed the for, changed things for me was a video that Chris Stuckman did, who is a film reviewer on um, Enemy, a Denis Villeneuve, an earlier Denis Villeneuve movie called Enemy, where he just analyzed it with the with the movie on screen. And I was like, oh, okay, so this that was really, you know, really immersive. And that's something clicked there for me. And so the form, I don't know, you know, it's it's such a wide field. And I almost sometimes almost feel like video essay is like a, a misnomer. It's really just video. You know, it just they're just vi- YouTube videos. You know, they're nothing. There's not more special or anything or different really from other YouTube videos. It's just people trying to figure out ways to articulate their thoughts or opinions in a visual way. It just is something that has the spirit of the written essay, which is like an inquisitive line of thought. It's not comprehensive. It's not, you know, a systemic understanding of a whole topic. It is a question and thought articulated. And for me, what I was always seeking was immersion. You know, how can I bring people into the line of thinking that I'm in in a way that carries them through. And I can't really speak to other video essays. I really don't know like what what motivates them. Um, but I assume it's the same thing. You know, I assume they're just trying to explore some interesting thing that they're thinking and trying to show an audience that in the most compelling way. But that's what we all do. I mean, that's what you guys do. You know, that that's what Vsauce is. That That's what all these channels are, you know, the, 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 the boundary lines between the explainer or the video essay or the science video, they're, they are porous. They, they, they you know, they, we are all trying to just use the tools of YouTube to express something in, in a way that can only be expressed on YouTube. We want to help you make something and mean something. And we say that phrase all the time because when you're making something and you know it means something, even if it's just to you, that's when you feel pretty good about what you're creating. The support for the Create Unknown in recent weeks has been incredible. Animators, artists, musicians, YouTubers, aspiring filmmakers, comedians, it is crazy how talented everybody in this community is. Consider joining the Create Unknown Patreon. Every dollar that comes through goes straight into the podcast and its community. That means more highlights videos. It means a big Minecraft project that's on the way. And eventually we'd like to manufacture custom piss bottles so you never have to leave your battle station. And being a patron unlocks participation in all of our live recordings. You've seen the roster of guests we've had. Having access to their minds is a unique opportunity. You can go to patreon.com slash thecreateunknown or click the link that's in the description. Every little bit helps and your support means absolutely everything to us. Patreon.com slash thecreateunknown. Links in the description. We appreciate you, Space Cowboys.
I've got a question about essays in general, and I'm going to make this a, a weirdly specific question to you. Um, the essay format is truly one of the oldest formats in communication. Like people have been uh, writing essays for so, so long to get serious points across. Um, you know, so many of the, the great books from the 17 and 1800s are essays, collections of essays. Uh, so many of the influential things have been individual essays. Um, there was there was a man uh, at Boston University uh, named Lance Morrow, and Lance Morrow taught uh, a course specifically on essay writing. The, the course was called The Essay. I was never able to fit this in my schedule, and I, I always regretted that. Um, my question here is, do you think it's possible or how, how valuable is it rather to have the formal study of something like an essay format as opposed to, uh, making videos and getting a sense of what viewers like and how to craft, uh, you know, engaging, uh, engaging prose, which, which is a better approach, um, is one superior? Well, I mean, I, I, I always tend to think that doing like doing is the, the best path to take just trying and trying again and trying again. That being said, the, the writer who launched really my whole, like all my curiosity about everything is an essayist. It's Ralph Waldo Emerson from the 1800s. And, and the first essay in the book is called Emerson's Magic. And for me, what I would do is, and you're, you're, you're going to be like one of the only persons to actually get this, but I would skip classes uh, at BU and go to the Barnes and Noble in Kenmore Square. And <laughs> yeah. there was, and I would get Emerson's essays and take them to the mini cafe that was like a Starbucks or something, whatever it was. And I would read, yeah. I would just read. And those essays changed, changed my life. And, and, and it wasn't like technically a formal education in essay writing, but, you know, I hesitate to say everything, but almost everything that you need to know about what the essay can do, Emerson did. And yeah, it sounds like very focused, very focused study. Yeah. In I way. mean, you know, so it's not formal, but it's it's focused. Yo, oh, my my study. I was going to say, yeah, because the, essay, the essays yeah, yeah. aren't necessarily focused. And that was that was a key. You know, that, that was yeah. a key to understanding. But it was certainly focused study. I mean, you know, I, I describe in the book how in, in high school, like I was very uninspired and was thinking of education in the way that my suburban world message to me, which was that it's all about grades and all about college and jobs and just this linear path through life. And then reading Emerson, I was like, oh, this is just a 360 degree curiosity into the world. And the, it, the way he articulated things, it was like reading my own thoughts. That was, that was the thing that blew my mind. And he says, you know, the young man reveres men of genius because to speak truly, they are more himself than he is. And I thought Emerson is more me than me. Like he's saying the things I think, but that I, in the ways I can't say. And so, yeah, it was, a, it was a, definitely a focus study. And from there, I've read many other essays, of course, but that was really the thing that launched this 
obsession with the specific form where, you know, he would like one essay, for example, experience, which I love is a mess. You know, he's like, he's trying to explain what, what the moment to moment experience of being alive is like. And he's going back and every paragraph, he's going back and forth. And every next paragraph is like uh, contradicting the one before it. And what you're getting from it is not a focused argument by any means, but you're getting the representation of a mind on the page, a mind that is in conflict with itself, like all human minds are. And I was just like, whoa, I didn't know. I, I, I did not know people could do this stuff with language. So I recommend reading essayists for, for that reason. And Virginia Woolf is the same. Somebody else who had a huge impl- influence on me. You know, the, 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 you're, you're never going to get there without practicing and doing. But to see these people say the things that are in your head is really cool. And, you know, every, every great writer can do that. I always wonder what percentage of somebody watching a video i mean i guess it depends on the video but often what the blend is if if like the ideal goal of the creator to maximize the joy of the viewer is to create some sort of blend between better articulating what that person already thought while also introducing ideas that they hadn't thought of before that they agree with I don't, I, th- I don't know if that makes any sense. I'm just no, it does it right now. I, I think it's I think it's both. I mean, I think at that time when I was reading Emerson, like I was so I was so unsophist like my brain, my mind was so unsophisticated that he he was dropping gems like every two paragraphs because I I didn't know what the hell I believed. You know, I didn't know what I th- what I was thinking at all. You know, but I also like writers who and you know YouTubers or any kind of creator who can tell me something that I don't know or haven't been thinking of, you know, like, uh, I also say in the book that, that Emerson goes too far a lot of times in this, like this, this, this focus on the self, right. And that you have to be a nonconformist and all these things like the multitude is bad. What I've learned from other essays, particular or other writers, other creators, particularly people who are not the same as me, not like, white guys, for example, is that there that I cannot always assume that the deep experiences I have or the deep thoughts I have are representative of all of experience. And so I think it's both. You know, you're reading you're reading people to sharpen your own mind because there's 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 language happening in your head that is a mess. There's language happening in my head that is a mess. And great writers can tidy that up mess up really well. But writers can also teach you about stuff that you never could know or haven't looked at yet. Um, So it's both, I think. Kevin, who is your Emerson? Who is your equivalent? Uh, Do you have one? Do you have an equivalent to uh, the the process uh, that Evan describes of feeling like somebody is is better at being you than you? Um, Not not directly in that regard. uh, For me, I've always uh, related more to comedians. Um, that, you know, for a long time I was so obsessed with comedy and a lot of, it's so funny because I I was just thinking about this like 13 seconds ago (laughs) when you were talking about this idea of being able to sort of somebody else articulating your thoughts better than you could in your own 
scrambled egg brain. Yeah. I felt that a lot with comics, with stand-up comics, where they will come up with the joke that I wish that I came up, like they came up with the way to make the thing that I noticed being funny, actually funny. And that is the art is so there's a huge difference between like I could come up with funny premises a lot. Turning a funny premise or a funny thought into a good joke is so hard. Oh, yeah. It's really hard. It's, oh, yeah. It's that's the art. Like I was never able to crack that and probably didn't try hard enough and gave up. And, you know, that's a that's a different podcast altogether. But the great comedians are the ones who can because, y you know, the, the reaction after you laugh a lot of times is that's so true. It's funny because it's true. Well, why is it true? It's true to you because you thought about that before. But just because you thought of that doesn't mean that you were able to articulate or synthesize that idea into a hysterical premise. And that's what to me, like the legends of comedy well, are able to do, you know, I, 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 to I so relate to that. And, you know, I may I actually make that connection in the book. So there's a there's another essay in the book about Seinfeld stand up comedy. And there it's basically a sister essay to the Emerson piece. And it is just about how what they're doing, what Seinfeld and what Emerson is doing is this is essentially the same thing. And, and great stand up comedians like John Stewart said of Seinfeld that he has something to he has a way of putting things in in four layers in just the right wording to the point where you go oh my god I, oh, it's been in my head forever but I always thought that I never could put it that way and it's so funny you know that's what stand up comedians do they they articulate our point of view in clever ways Emerson's doing the, exactly the same thing it's just not funny you know you're not going to get any mm -hmm. belly laughs from the from the essays but comedians are articulators of experience that have a far greater reach on the public. And the reason is because everybody's looking for a laugh. You know, a laugh mm -hmm. is so pleasurable. And when they're big laughs, like they stick in your memory because it's an emotional moment. And uh, not only that, but a joke has to work the first time that you hear it. You know, there is there is no leeway with jokes. Like if I read something, I've read, I mean, I could tell you 300 million paragraphs in Emerson where I have to read them like three, like 30 times and I'm still not clear, but I can go back and read it. But if, if a comedian flubs a premise or flubs uh, a punchline on stage, that joke fails. And so they are forced to be masters of articulation. The best ones are just so good at, at making things funny, but also making things intelligible the first time around. Seinfeld's great at that, but any comedian you, any, any comedian you name is going to be just like that. And they just hit, they just hit such a wide percentage of the population that, that I think is the reason we have such deep connections to, to our favorites. Mm -hmm. And they're so memorable too. And also because they, they're talking so often about universal truths yeah. When those like funny little awkward moments that that happen to everyone come up, I can't even tell you the amount of times where I say, "Oh my gosh, so and so has a great joke about this," and and you know it's like, and then and you and then you find it. yourself trying to tell the joke and you're like, 
This is not like, going right. not happen. It's way funnier when he says it. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't bring up a YouTube video on your phone. That that is that that is the the worst possible thing that can happen. <laughs> That's the biggest faux pas. The ultimate cringe. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. Uh, you know everything that that the the both of you are talking about here um, is what makes the teachers that people have the the one or two that they really like that uh they they draw out of you things that you kind of didn't know were there you know and in a way they know you in a way that you don't know you and then facilitate that that flourishing right um i think there are a lot of ways a lot of ways uh, to get there what's what's the what are some of the other ways that somebody can develop as a person uh beyond Beyond reading, because I, I feel like with the great video essayists that I know and the great essayists that I know, all of them are so good at what they do for reasons that have nothing to do with reading or writing. There's something going on in their head that allows them to write a very, very good essay, and it's separate from the actual medium. I don't know. I don't know what that is. I mean, and I, I can't even say that for myself that, that that is the case, but I mean, for me personally, what I know is that I have a I have a slow brain in that like when I'm trying to understand something complex I really need need it need all the pieces to fit together and it takes me a little longer to work all that out the result of that is that by the time I get something and understand it I see the the chain and so I can communicate it back I think in a way that other people can understand because I am so I'm so sensitive to to hold, to like logical holes, you know, or, or or holes in which people would be like, well, wait, what, you know, what what about that thing? Like, why 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 are you assuming this? You know, and because I take a little longer to to for things to click in my head, I'm using that in my videos and in the book as a way to translate that for an audience. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's one thing. Yeah you know, that, 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 that I do, but you know, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I think, you know, reading and writing for, uh, for the case of video for videos, it's editing, practicing, um, being a student of visual media, like movies and TV and the thing and other YouTube videos, you know, you, 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 you be sensitive to the things that you have a reaction to and try to understand why you you're having a, re a reaction to it. Um, and then, you know, take, take from that, you know, liberally. I want to take a question that we would usually throw at the end from, from, uh, uh one of the patrons. Uh, it's so directly relevant here that uh, I want to pop it in. It's from Dan, the latch. He uh, is a film student. <clears throat> He's quite a clear thinker as well. His question is what can a video essay do that a written essay can't and vice versa? That's a great question. The yeah. things that I have found are the reason the Chris Stuckman video was so revolutionary to me was because I've read I've read so much film criticism and some of it is f awesome you know some of it is just fabulous but I'm reading it and I'm finding myself thinking oh I wish I could see what they're talking about and so sometimes I bring up the video I sometimes I bring up the movie and I have the like the the, the essay on, on my computer or on in a book and I'm like looking back and forth and it's, 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 it's just not ideal, you know? And so analyzing visual media in a visual medium works better 
sometimes in some cases than written essay, you know? And so I was just saying like, I was thinking making these videos about movies, which, you know, I studied film, that's something I know. Being able to bring in the movie with the point I'm making, it connected in my mind way better. And so I was hoping it connected in other people's minds. Another, another version of that is paintings. You know, being able to pick apart a painting in real time, being able to isolate certain colors, you know, all the things you can do with editing tools, you know, allows you to engage with this visual medium in, in a more organic and I, and I hope deeper way than, than sometimes written criticism, even though that can be awesome too. But, you know, I have a personally have a hard time with art painting museums. I always that guy that's just staring there, not feeling anything like, what am I supposed to feel about this classic piece of work? And so taking it into my world of story, of, uh, of video, you know, that was my way of engaging and learning about these things. And then I just put it out there for, for other people who hopefully could get something out of that. Um, so those are, those are, I'm okay. Sorry. Oh no. I want to throw another question in because believe it or not, we have one specifically about you and classical art. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, that's pretty on the nose. Bring it on. Uh, Mansoor Chinchilla, um, wanted to know how you, how you go about writing about classical art and if it's different than how you write about other topics. And, and I want to tack a little bit onto it. Um, as far as, topics go, you know, that's not like in the top 10 of what the average person is really interested in. How do you take a topic like that, that they, that most, most viewers don't really think much about, know much about, or care much about and make it engaging to them? Well, I think we all know, like we're, we're kind of bombarded with this list of classics when we're in school, right? So we know what the classics are, Right. And that was my feeling. Like, I know that the Mona Lisa, I know that Starry Night are supposed to be some of the best paintings ever made. But then I look at them and I think, okay, well, I'm not like having this like transcendent experience, but I'm going to trust that the generations and hundreds of years of people who have said this have, there's something there. And so what I basically do is the same for any, for any video with those classic works is just I just read a shit ton of criticism about it. I read anything you can read. I watch stuff about it. And then slowly a kind of structure bubbles up in my head like, okay, I'm understanding now what the value is here, at least the value for me. And the way I'm going to express that is by making it this really tactile experience, this really immersive experience of showing you pieces of the painting, of putting it in its its historical context, of talking about the artist and making a story about it. I don't think it's, I really don't think it's any different than talking about um, like modern politics or, you know, a, a recent movie. You know, it, it is, it, it is, it can be as vital and impactful on your life as, as any of that. It, it's, this is, this is a little bit of me being like, sort of tinfoil hat but isn't it really interesting that <laughs> do it we uh well it's just interesting that we grow up uh being told being taught you know how to think about things like the mona lisa like here's what you should think about the mona lisa great painting one of the best of all time super famous it's amazing you're like okay i think that now 
or same thing, you know, with any of these paintings. Like, here's the list of the greatest paintings. Why? Because we told you that these were the greatest paintings. Uh, don't ask any more questions or don't think about it any more than that. And you just file that away as like, this is the list. Okay. We all know. We all agree upon the list. We all got together. Yeah. You said this is the list and we all know it and we'll just take it for granted and moving on to the next thing. It, that's kind of weird is, 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 is all. Like, yeah. I don't mean to be like having this stoner moment, but it is weird. Well, the canon, the Western canon has issues, like serious issues. You know, there are lots of things on that on that list that maybe shouldn't be there. And there are lots of things that aren't on it, specifically from marginalized artists that should be on it. And the fact that we get fed, it's not tinfoil hat at all. You know, the fact that we get we get fed a certain canon as children in social studies is the result of, you know, hundreds of years of a certain group of people saying this is this is what it is. So there are a lot of things, a lot of things you find might not actually have that impact or value for you, but a lot of it does. And a lot of the stuff that made it to the present, like art that survives or art that survives more than a hundred years is worth a look, you know, like it, 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 very few things That's a good point. survive for a century. Um, and you, all you have to do is just look at the things that were popular in, you know, the 1910s and 1920s that we never, we would, we wouldn't even know, you know, things that they thought were going to be the most popular thing, you know, are, have gone, disappeared, but something lasted. Part of that is because this certain group of people, predominantly white guys, like brought this thing through time in the form of criticism, but also Part of it is because there is actual value there. There's actual genius there that is just surviving across decades. That's a really good point. And I think about it with with cuisine, too. You know what's awesome? Fried chicken is awesome. That's why people have been frying chickens for like a billion years. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really good. Whereas you see ads in in old magazines from the 70s, and it'll be like a full page ad for a, a gelatin mold for like pimento and tuna jello you know and it's these really strange things that weren't that good nobody eats those anymore because they're kind of disgusting uh, <laughs> so even with something like like food uh you know things that have stood the test of time have done that for a reason and it, it seems like the same concept would be there for um for any kind of art yeah or just think of the people who like think of the people who were never famous in their lives and died thinking that no one cared because no one did for their entire life. And now it's the most popular work that we have, you know, like, so at the, it, like the present moment is a bad judge of what will last. And the things that do carry with them some inner inherent beauty. Mm -hmm. I wish all the that people with, with smaller channels realize that when they're disappointed that their video doesn't get a million <laughs> yes. views and it gets 150 it like it's almost impossible to get them to understand that right now doesn't matter at all it just doesn't i mean there's a point at which right now matters like kevin if you put out a video in a month uh and it gets 150 views you're going to have you're going to take a ding uh, on on the checking account uh, there's a point at which it matters, but in general, right now doesn't matter at all. It just is is useless. Um, 
you know, a little bit down the line, whether it's weeks or months or decades, uh, tends to matter a lot more for better and worse. It's the weirdest thing to me about art in general, because I think of, Evan, what you were saying, uh, when you were saying that I was thinking of John Kennedy Toole, who wrote yeah. my favorite book of all time, A Confederacy mm. of Dunces. I love it. I love it, too. Is It was like the poster boy for what you're talking about, where it's like, nobody cared, nobody likes me, the guy kills himself, yep. and then through like a strange turn of events, eventually his mom gets that book published, and it's widely considered one of the funniest books of all time, and rightly so. What a a thing that he'll never know happened, happened. Yeah. Uh, and he has influenced countless, countless people with that book. And that's just such a strange power that creative works have that it is so, it's just strange. It's funny because you made me think like, uh, you made me think that, um, what are the, what are the YouTubers who have made, who have made like a hundred videos or 200 videos that have gotten a total of like 300 views together that we will be like worshiping in 50 years <laughs> you know like <laughs> like will that happen i mean I, hey the episode chat is is fixated on on this one little bit but let me tell you uh a, a child slash teen started drawing a mashup comic of pikachu and sonic the hedgehog in his bedroom uh to zero fanfare and then has become one of the most talked about people in the history of the world. <laughs> it's, uh, it's crazy. It's amazing that, um, yeah, that that kind of thing can happen. But if you think about the, uh, the, uh, Sonichu origin story here, this was somebody drawn away at their desk and for all sorts of crazy reasons. Um, now, I, I truly believe that they're the most doc documented person in the world next to the Pope. Um, I, I have no doubt about that. And, and that's just an insane progression. So you really can never tell uh, how any of this stuff is going to go. Yeah, I just I just worry that those people, those geniuses that are in the shadows of social media are buried too deep. You know, like the volume of stuff that we are dealing with at this time is astronomical, you know, That's a good point. Um, <laughs> to, 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 but you know, things surface, things surface all the time, you know, random mm. stuff surfaces all the time. So a little hope there. It is paradoxical though, isn't it? I think there is a, this weird paradox where it's never been easier to surface, but never been harder to surface in some other ways? I don't know. I, th I think that there is some, perhaps something to that. It seems like in the past, you know, I'm not, not saying this was better. I'm saying, but in the past, there were sort of specific hoops that you had to jump through, like talk about the film industry. Here are the hoops to get to become a director, okay? You go to Hollywood and you're a key grip and you meet this person and, and whatever. There was a there was like a path and, and, and a series of hurdles to jump. So only specific people got through that path, like Stanley Kubrick and Martin Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino, who you talk about. Like these are people who are completely obsessed, completely, obs just crazily, psychotically obsessed 
holy cow, I read this thing about Kubrick recently making people shoot like hundred, like, like the same shot hundreds of times until they were like hysterical crying because they didn't want to do the same thing again. Yeah. But he, this is the way Stanley Kubrick made his films. He would just shoot the same freaking thing a hundred times <laughs> until he got it however he wanted to. I mean, this is a crazy person. But um, now you can still do that. I don't know. I'm dubious of what's coming out of Hollywood in general. Um, and then meanwhile, you know, last week we've had our, uh, was it last week we talked about how like everybody will eventually have their 60 seconds of TikTok fame. And, and then oh, TikTok and then, is a whole then, thing. Then, then, then that's it. <laughs> yeah. TikTok is a whole so, thing. But yeah, the fame, I think the fame thing is an issue, especially for people who get famous really quickly. Um, but I think and I hope that what binds the people of the past, like Kubrick and Tarantino, with the people of the future working in these new media is the obsession. I really yeah. think that you cannot make like get to a place where you have at least in some enduring mark or enduring success in the industry unless you are like monomaniacally focused on your love of something in the best case or your need for fame and success on the worst case in the worst case. Yeah. Are you, are you familiar with the director named Sam Peckinpah? Of course. I love Peckinpah. You, have you read the book about Sam Peckinpah? <laughs> because it is the definition He's insane. of obsessed. This dude ruined countless lives. He like ruined everyone's <laughs> life around him. His his you know his loved ones, his children. What paid attention to absolutely nobody. Dragged. You gotta it, crack a few eggs. Oh my god! No, this guy cracks one some way to eggs. make an omelet. He made, <laughs> oh lord! Uh, he made his, he made the Wild <laughs> Bunch, which was a, a great Wild Bunch omelet, and a you know a bunch of other films. But holy cow, was he like you know a, rec the, a human uh, wrecking ball? Yeah, Tasmanian devil just spinning through villages and <laughs> destroying lives to make those freaking cowboy movies. <laughs> yeah, we're hoping the obsession takes the form of kindness and generosity to the people we work with. That's what we're hoping happens. Uh, uh, but sometimes, like you say, it doesn't. <laughs> Somebody. Kevin uh, beats me. Uh, this uh, is my confession that Kevin just abuses me uh, <laughs> this I is need, my cry for i help. need to cut you off because you're 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 um implicating me you in have crimes. that power later <laughs> just just posted in the episode chat i just wanted to read this because it's perfect um an article from the guardian about peckinpah called bloody sam peckinpah wasted insane and in indestructibly pure uh, so if you don't want to read like the 400 page book that i did about sam peckinpah then maybe just check that article out to get the cliff notes version of, of what we're talking about here, but that's a thing. And I've heard that, uh, James Cameron, uh, is a, is a tough guy to work for mm. as well. Um, and, and, uh, Michael Jackson was too like, Oh man, it's been a while since I read about this, but like, uh, Michael Jackson's music video sets were completely, completely insane. Just forcing, I think people died, like literally died of exhaustion yeah, making those like Michael Jackson videos because it was just like nonstop work. You were not allowed to sleep. <laughs> it's yeah. just like completely horrible. I, I great videos though. I don't. I don't believe that great or even genius work justifies like assholery. Um, right. I so 
it's so tough because like you say, I love the Peckinpah movies. I, I, I think they're just absolute classics. Wild Bunch and Straw Dogs, The Getaway. But if we, uh, I'm almost scared to read the book. Like you're saying, because like when you learn <laughs> these things, it does take it a little bit away, you know, and the people of the past had it, had it, had it a lot more was left invisible for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's almost like uh, you don't want to pull, pull open those cupboards because it's not going to be great. Oh, no. When I finished the book, ex- the exact thought that I had was, was it worth it? And that's the question. And it's a, it's a valid question. It's a good philosophical question to ask. Certainly like, a question, yeah. Oh, was it worth the sorrow that was caused and the pain and all this stuff to make these movies? I don't have the answer to that. I mean, and we're, and we're, and we're just a talking, really good question. We're just talking about like the 1960s. You know, think, of, yeah. think about what, what we could know about like Da Vinci or Caravaggio, you know, like people who are working in the right. 60s. We don't, we're, we don't know anything about that, you know, no. and that could have been some horrible shit. Yeah, it is possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to jump back uh, and work in another another question because we we touched on a little piece of it. Um, when you mentioned uh, the sheer amount of documentation, the stuff that goes on, I was thinking about this as I was mowing. Um, some people have shower thoughts. I have mower thoughts, right? So I was mowing thinking about books that I wanted to buy related to the French and Indian War. I was like, oh, you know, there's a point at which I can have pretty much all the available correspondence books and, and you know, all the original texts uh, that are there. It's like, what would somebody do 100 years from now with the sheer volume of garbage in my life if I were famous? Like, congratulations, uh, history student. You get to go through the 150,000 emails in my inboxes. <laughs> like this, right. There's a shocking amount of stuff yeah. to sift through. And it, this this kind of elides into a content issue. Um, with most of the things that, that you do videos on, and a lot of the ones that, that Kevin has done videos on, there's so much substance there when it comes to writing. And this question is from Ducky, by the way. Um, when it comes to putting that together, whether it's in an essay or a video essay, how do you find the balance of uh, between including enough so that people get it, they can follow along, they understand, and not so much that it's too much? How do you identify that tightrope and then walk it? You mean, how do you like put, put enough research and information in to get the point across and not um, kill the momentum of a piece? Like that tightrope? Type type yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just very difficult with with all kinds of writing. It's very easy to overwrite. You know, you write way too much uh, and it's a lot more common to have things get cut than you know to to say, oh, you know what? Give me five more pages about this. Um, and Kevin has, has taught me a great deal about how the pace happens yeah. on uh, the video format and what slows down that pace and all that. Is there a way to develop that skill so you know the the right amount of substance and information to to hit the optimal pace? I think it's a feel thing. I think again, like so many of my answers, it is an iterative process that you learn over time, which is the beauty of YouTube. Is that it, or at least the is the promise of YouTube is that it's not precious. Um, 
I really felt that when I was starting, like throw something up there, have it be done, and then identify what's wrong with it and do it better the next time. Now I, now I feel like I've gotten to this place now where I do feel more precious about each video, which I, I don't know how to really, to go back to that place because I feel more responsibility because of the audience and all that. But finding that balance between information and pace is just a, a, a thing that you're going to learn over a period of time. And you're never going to, and you, and you might not get it right every time. That's the thing too. It's like you, you try your best. Um, the thing about the essay is that like, I found for me that seven to 10 minute videos are, are a good sort of sweet spot for what I'm doing personally. Um, moving pa past that, it, it can start to drag and going a little too much shorter than that. It feels like you're not getting, you're not, you don't have the time to get enough in there, but I'm trying to sort of make a short film with each one of the videos. And what I have to do sometimes is like the, the thing about making video, like videos on YouTube is that the writing of it sometimes doesn't really let you know what it's going to feel like when it's edited. And so sometimes I'll have to edit, like the writing and editing has to happen at the same time. So I'll be like writing a minute and editing it. And that way I, when I see it edited, like I wish, I so wish I could be one of those people who does a rough draft on something and then like a really rough draft and then goes and tightens in, in, in the book I did. But for my videos, the, the, the video has to be like every minute that's constructed has to be perfect before I can get onto the next minute. And the reason for that is because I'm rewatching it a million times to feel the momentum of the piece. And that is something that, that is something as big as connecting two pieces of information and something as small as the milliseconds between two voiceover clips. You know, you just have to feel, feel that. Um, and then, you know, after it's done, I show my wife and she says, you know, that that's good. Or like you, you, you missed this part or there's a connection here that's not right. And, and I'll go back to it. Uh, but it's hard to know. There's hard. I don't think there's really any hard and fast rules for finding that balance. Dan, the latch asked a little bit about this process. Um, his question was what comes first visuals or narration? Uh, I think you just spoke to that a little bit, but, um, how is the interplay between the visuals and the essay in your process? If the aim is to make something that needs video to exist, it is only natural, I think, to have to use, like, it's only natural that the right, the script version of it is going to not be a good, uh, it's, it's not going to be a good representation of what it, of what it can be. And so that's why I often find myself having to edit, you know, uh, at least the beginning of it. A lot of times, like, they all have a different feel, right? And so, you know, defining the, the feel of the video is going to happen in like the first like 30 seconds. And so a lot of times I just have to just record the first paragraph of the, vo of the voiceover because they're all scripted out, but ha record the first paragraph and just spend a day on getting the feel of that. And that's, you know, that's music is a big thing, feeling the, 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 the vibe of the music. It's, it's what kind of media am I going to be using or what kind of media do I have? It's typeface, 
I, I mean, I'm super sensitive to fonts and things. I love that. And so it's all these little things. And I think like if what you're trying to do is make something that is unique to this form, you have to lead with the video side of it a little bit. Um, and so that that's that's my process. I think when Matt, when we uh, work first on that first draft that you'll write for uh, a Vsauce 2 video, a lot of what happens is sort of what Evan is talking about. I'll do in my head. Like I'll, while I'm reading, okay. I will play the video in my head. I'll imagine it. And that's where a lot of sort of the initial round of feedback comes from. It's like I can read a thing and then simultaneously think about what's going on. And, and I know like, for instance, uh, we spoke with uh, Michael Reeves. The way that Michael Reeves makes videos is he will shoot things and then immediately start editing it. And it takes right. him a really yeah, long time yeah. to make a video because, well, his, his videos are really involved, first of all. It would take anybody a long time to make those videos. But another reason is that he just, he does them like almost second by second. I mean, not literally, but close to that. He'll, he'll do Pretty like close. a, like a yeah. five second chunk. He'll spend like a bunch of time on, shoot it, edit it. If he doesn't like it, he'll redo it. Um, and it's like yeah. really building like a Lego castle one block at a time. Whereas with Vsauce 2, like it doesn't really work that way. Like when a, when, it, when a script comes in, I'll read the script and sort of watch the video in my head as I'm reading it um, and then make adjustments from there. And then it gets shot and the visuals start to get put together. I have to say, I'm actually, I'm, I'm jealous of that actually uh, and envious of that, Kevin, because I, I just find that I can't do that. I cannot visualize what it's going to be until I'm like in there with Final Cut. It, feel, it, it feels a lot like Matrix being hooked up by wires to the machine, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, in the, you know, and, and it's like the, the tools of Final Cut are like extensions of my fingers, you know? And the amount that can change in terms of feel and vibe of video from a change in music, from a change in edit, from uh, like the voiceover. Oh my God, the voiceover is the bane of my existence because I spend, I, I'm doing every line like a hundred times and it's because I'm trying. You're the Stanley Kubrick of voiceover. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, which, which, <laughs> which really scared me because I read the audiobook for the book and I was like, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna be the same way, they're gonna hate me. And <laughs> it, take 97. <laughs> yeah, it ended up not being that way. Um, but for the videos, it's like because it's seven minutes, because every line is important, I, I really want to get the and I can't like I can't just produce the exact tone I want every time. It sometimes takes a few a few times to get like, mm -hmm. you know, because because little changes in tone can make a big difference, like music can make it make a big difference. And so. I wish that I I was like Hitchcock or you, Kevin, who can vi like visualize the the movie or the video before it's made. But I, I just I can't I, I can't do that. And so mm -hmm. uh, that that's what takes me like Michael Reeves into the editing suite so early. And it's the same. I was doing the same thing when I was making short films. Like you get the days you get the days uh, uh, footage. I'd go right home and edit the footage before mm. day two. Just so that I could feel like what what am I working with here? Because it's just so different. Every stage, everything is so different. You know, uh, I wanted to get a sense of like what it's actually going to feel like. Mm -hmm. Well, we've got uh, we can we can machine gun a couple questions that are left. Sure. How does that sound, Kevin? Yeah. Uh, let's let's see. So 
Yeah, uh, this is another one from Chinchilla, who is an outstanding artist himself. Uh, he's the one who asked about classical art. Do you have a favorite art movement? Ooh, great question. Um, it is pretty good. It's like that thing when you're trying to think of things and tr- trying to think of them erases them all from your brain. Um, <laughs> when you forget your phone number. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love... Uh, I love impressionism and post-impressionism. Um, I just love the spirit of that period um, from like Manet to the end of the century, like 1900. I just love that breaking down of everything, um, you know, and just the, the, the speed. I did a video like how we got from Manet to Jackson Pollock in 100 years. It was like representational art and then it was throwing paint on a canvas. like. How did we, what is that? You know, because, and this goes back to obsession because human beings are obsessive. And once things start to break down, it's like, we're not satisfied until we're getting just paint thrown at your face. You know, we have to take it to the extreme. And so I love the the early period of that um, when Manet's work was not being accepted uh, by, uh, the French, the Paris salon and had to go to the salon of rejects and the rejects became the movement. You know, that, that is, that is my favorite period. That was a really solid, complete answer. (laughs) Um, not just like throwing out a label and being like, yeah, that's that's what I like. That's pretty good. (laughs) We got the, the full treatment on that. Um, so Vibecat asked about the evolution of, your video essays, when you started making content like that, you first started, did you initially have a really specific idea of what you'd make videos on, like a, a, a narrow set of topics, uh, like I'm just going to do video essays about movies or I'm just going to do whatever? Um, or did you just start off by thinking, I'm going to do whatever good idea comes to mind, whatever I think needs to be done. It was the widest pot. Like I was so scared at that. I mean, I, like I said, at the beginning I was, I was a, I was doing a, a, a vlog brothers clone and I mm-hmm. just knew that I didn't want it to be about me. So that was the key thing then. So I wanted it to be about stuff okay. and it was the stuff that I was interested in. But then after a while, I just became really scared about being pigeonholed. And so I would actively pursue wide ranges of topic. I mean, my interests are wide ranging, but I, I really didn't want to be the guy that did that type of thing. And so I tried to do videos on, on all kinds of different stuff so that the only, the only connective tissue was me. It's the same with the book. It's like, n- there, there is no thematic connection in terms of the subjects, but there is a connection in terms of the way that I look at them. Um, and so it naturally, I think, focused in the later years towards art because I think that is probably my, you know, main interest in terms of the different types of art. But even to this day, I I am, have this fear of being like pigeonholed in one thing. So I'm I'm always trying to cast a wide net. Well, I think that that slides perfectly into our final question, which is uh, my final question from now on uh, for everybody that comes on this podcast, because we talk to so many interesting people. We love what's interesting about you, but we don't we don't quite understand what makes a person interesting. So, Evan, what makes a person interesting in your estimation? I think the simplest answer is is obsession, fascination, 
people who go like you're, you're just talking about I you're interested in the French and Indian War. And I'm like, I, I want to know more about that like that because <laughs> because and, and earlier you told me about the teachers that changed you. The teachers that changed me were the ones that were so obsessed about the, the, the subject they were teaching that I was infected with that enthusiasm. You know, I, I declared an archaeology minor at BU because of one one guy. You know, I, I, that wasn't on my radar, yeah. but like he got me so into it. Now it's a now it's a it's a lifelong passion that, you know, and so what makes people interesting is that thing in us that just makes us go way deeper on something niche or not that we can't get enough of. I love that. And it doesn't matter what it is. If you're telling me about it and I see that in your eyes, I'm hooked. It's a good answer. I think we're, oh, we're on board answer. with that. that is really good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's come up. That's come up in so many different uh, contexts where it's like, hey, if somebody is almost borderline unhealthily obsessed with something, that is somebody you want yes. to talk to because there's something yes, there. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, Evan, it's been a pleasure. Uh, everybody check out the Nerd Writer YouTube channel, but more importantly, go pre-order the book. It's called Escape into Meaning, Essays on Superman, Public Benches, and Other Obsessions, strangely enough. Hey! Obsessions hey! in we go. the subtitle of your book. <laughs> so... Uh, it rings true. All right, we, we will be back uh, next week with with Rusty Cage to ask him about a certain object that he's building in his backyard that we won't say for fear of demonetization. Uh, and it's be uh, hard to talk about. <laughs> we'll do it. Yeah, we'll come up yeah. with some euphemisms for that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, if you want to support the Create Unknown, please just go to Patreon.com/slash The Create Unknown and uh, join our Discord. All right, Evan. Uh, again, uh, it was awesome to have you on a long time coming and uh, good luck with the book. Thank you so much. This was just I could have talked to you guys for hours. So much fun. All right. All right. We'll we'll make that happen. We'll have you back on. Uh, we are out of here. We'll see you, Space Cowboys. Thanks for listening to The Create Unknown. We make this show with the support of our patrons. 100% of that goes directly to keeping episodes going every week, and the recent support has been amazing. Sidpoke, NRM, Venture Addicts, Weezer Good, you all really do make this show happen. Thank you to the Tots and Dumpster crew, old and new, who save tiny little lives every month. Thank you to our grizzled, battle-hardened child infantry. Clemente De Los Santos, Dan The Latch, Demetrius Andrews, Erica, Ferrykun, Jen Mefasanti, Kevin Menard, Mikhail Steinke, Monahim, Natsu, Penny Piddler, Ryan Steer, Ryan Kinder, Samuel Manser, Sean S., Sean Malone, and Tom Bidioger. And a tremendous shout-out to our elite baby gang commanders. Atrocious Guff, Cat, Dojangles, Graham Robertson, James Gallagher, Jeff Davis, Orange Vanilla Coke, Patrick Pister, TCU's personal pilot, Andy, Ryan Carroll, Baseweight, Vinthos, Yetis Deletus, Jonas Walter, Nathan Robinson, Jelksies, and of course, Trevstead. You are the elite. Thank you as well to our indentured servants, producer-editor Ben Webster, Minecraft mogul Laterman, Discord kitten wrangler Conrad, and producer emeritus Dan Yoshua. Thanks to Baseweight for use of Created in the Unknown for the opening theme. Thanks to Electro Voice for giving us mics to sound good on top of it. And a special thanks to Main Gear for powering all of our PC endeavors. Create Unknown is an unknown media production in partnership with Studio 71.